I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Juan, capítulo 17, versículo 20 y 26. ¿Sí, Silvia? <laughs> I'm going to preach in English next hour, and, I, and I'm sure going to preach in English this hour. <laughs> I can't say more than five words in Spanish without getting my tongue tangled. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I do not desire that they also whom thou hast given me be, I, I do desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known Thee, yet I have known Thee, and these have known that Thou didst send me, and I have made Thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith Thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. I have the opportunity to take extra time in my message with you folk. Because at 10 o'clock, it has to be about 15 to 20 minutes long in order to allow for the double speak in English and Spanish. But I can expand a little more with you folk. And uh, so I want to take that opportunity, and we're recording this one so that we can put this on the Internet. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus twice in this prayer. And, and this is only the last half of the prayer, but twice in this prayer... He says, I'm praying this, among other things, that the world may know that you sent me. And the first time he says that, he says that they all may be one, verse 21, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may know that thou didst send me. And then he says it again, over in uh, verse 23, I believe it is, I and them, thou and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me. Earlier in this same evening, Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper has said to them, you love one another. This is how all men will know that you're my disciples that you love one another. And I want us to realize this morning that love among people, genuine, unselfish, 
devoted love between people is so unusual, so out of the ordinary, that Jesus says when people have that who aren't even in the same family, it's a miracle when it occurs in the same family, but when people who aren't even in the same family have love for each other, the world is going to notice. And particularly when people love each other and care for one another genuinely, regardless of culture, regardless of race, regardless of language, regardless of differences, when there is a unity and a love among people that have varying backgrounds, varying skin color, and varying mother tongues, and varying families, when they genuinely love each other, the world is going to stop and say, this is so remarkable, it has to be from God. And one of the most amazing things about our testimony is that it is not so much what we say, although that's important, but it is what they see that convinces people that we are of God. And the most convincing evidence is unconditional love for each other. When we truly love each other, when we are truly one in Jesus Christ, when we truly have unity. And unity does not mean um, sameness. It means we have one heart and one mind in spite of differences and even with differences. But when we are together, loving each other, the world is absolutely amazed. And so, the questions that I pose today, and they relate to the body life messages that we've been talking about in Romans, but uh, they kind of take a side trail from that just a little bit. But the questions that I want to ask today and answer are, why do we have different languages, cultures, and races? How did we get the way we are across the world? Many of you have confessed to being Olympic junkies this past couple weeks, and you've been staying up late at night and watching the Olympics, and you have seen, um, oh, by the way, just as an aside, I commend to you uh, digital video recorders. They're great. Then you can watch the Olympics when you want to watch them, not when they're on. And if you don't read the paper, you won't spoil it by the headline announcements. You know, you can just see it happening live. But anyway, that's an aside. But you've been seeing people from all over the world, all different backgrounds, all different cultures, different colors, different languages. But you know what has really impressed me in the, in the, the contest that I have watched? Most of these are young people. I mean, even if they're not young, they're still relatively young, but many of them are, are teens. And I have just been interested to watch how much alike they all are. How much they long, you know, to win the contest. How much uh, they, their emotions are involved in their performance, in their, in their uh, you know, expertise, their training and skill. How... They react with sadness sometimes when they miss that coveted goal, that coveted medal. Um, to see the heart, to see the facial expressions. You know, you watch the eyes. You can say a lot of things and, and put on a mechanical face, but you can't hide the eyes. There's always 
a flicker. In fact, uh, people, well, I'm really getting off here now, but people, uh, people that are experts in uh, detecting lying, they have learned, um, are people that are able to te- detect what they call micro-emotions. They occur in about one to three milliseconds. That's a thousandth of a second. And uh, they occur quickly before the person is able to put up the front. And uh, those, those millisecond, microsecond kinds of emotions, those micro-emotions, betray the truth. And you can often see that in the eyes more than anywhere else. And those are the kinds of things that you see that people from all over have the same passion, the same heart, the same dreams, the same sadness, the same emotions, because we are really very much alike. So why is it that we have different cultures, languages, and races? You know, the Bible tells us in Genesis, but Acts 17.26 confirms this, that of one essence God made man in His image. And the interesting thing about the Acts 17.28 passages, or 26 passage, is that it literally says, we all have the same essence. We are all of one origin, of one source, Adam and Eve, that God made in His own image. He created them in His likeness. And Adam and Eve, though they were physical and God is a spirit, Adam and Eve nonetheless bore the, the likeness of God in, in the sense of His personhood, in His intellect, in His emotions, in His capacity to choose and execute uh, decisions based on His judgment. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and all people have that Adam-Eve essence in their lives. Everyone came from Adam and Eve. But although that's true, uh, fast forward in your Bible history to Genesis chapter 6, where God has become grieved because the heart of man has gotten so wicked and so rebellious that God has said, I'm going to have to destroy everything in the earth and start over. It's so bad, we can't fix it. We're going to have to begin again. And he says to Noah, I want you to build an ark. And pretty soon the story unfolds that Noah builds the ark, and his wife and his sons and their wives, they get on the ark along with the representation of all of the animal kingdom, and God sends the floods upon the world, and the earth is destroyed by flood. And then not long after that, uh, Adam uh, or Noah and his wife and family come off of the ark. And in Genesis 9, verse 7, God gives to Noah and his family the same commandment that he gave to Adam and Eve. He says, I want you to be fruitful, I want you to multiply, and I want you to fill the planet. I want you to populate the whole earth, fill up this earth. And what did human beings do as soon as they could. Noah's family began to to reproduce themselves and the the family of humanity began to grow. At this point in time, everybody was not only a descendant of Adam and Eve, but everybody was also a descendant of Noah. There wasn't anyone else. They were all descendants of Noah. They all had the same parents. And so as they began to, to grow and expand, Instead of doing what God asked them to do, they did virtually the opposite. 
They said, if we're not careful, we're going to get scattered out. We're going to end up all over the planet. Well, guess what? That's what God told them to do. But they said, instead of that, let's come together and let's build a tower that goes up into the heavens. That will be a rallying point for us. It will be where we come together and it will keep us unified. And, and the scripture is not explicit in this, but I believe it's implied in the text in what God says. Because he says, if we don't stop this, there's no telling what they're going to be able to do. Imagine this, that all people on the planet speak the same language, have the same culture, are able to thoroughly communicate with each other, and now they're going to build a tower up into the sky that has both religious and spiritual significance as well as political significance. And God says, if we let these people go the course they're on, it is impossible to say what grand things they're going to be able to accomplish. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that God had a plan, a plan of the ages, that in the fullness of time, He would send Jesus Christ. Abraham is not even on the scene yet. And yet, once mankind would get to a certain point in wickedness and rebellion, but unbounded um, intellect and ability, the capacity for expansion, control, and self-destruction would come far earlier than the unfolding of God's plan. If you read the scriptures about the last times, one of the things it says is that knowledge will increase. In the end times, knowledge will increase, but the love of many will wax cold. It will, it will um, become indifferent. People will not care for each other, but knowledge will become prolific. The last time I looked up the statistics on this, the entire body of world knowledge is now doubling at a rate of close to every two years. Now, now imagine that. I mean, think about it, for it's mind-boggling in itself. Everything human beings have ever learned in their entire history today we will know twice as much two years from now. And two years from that, we will know four times as much. And by 2020, we will know about 20 times as much as we know today. I mean, think about it and where it's going to go. People are discovering things so fast that they're being rediscovered by other people across the planet because they can't read what each other's doing necessarily and, and the researchers can't always get it into the mainstream of information. But all kinds of things are being learned and discovered at an unprecedented rate to the point that it's ultimately going to move us toward that time of the last time. And human beings are going to use that knowledge not to an advantage. Yes, there are many advances in medical science and altruistic kinds of things, but people are ultimately going to use this knowledge in ways that are destructive. And if God had allowed the human race to stay on course back after the flood at the Tower of Babel, 
If God had allowed human beings to pool their knowledge and resources at the rate they were going, they would have expanded and exploded and destroyed the race before the plan of God ever got off the ground. And frankly, that was one of Satan's agendas. And so God, the scripture says, himself caused confusion deliberately to force them to do what he had told them to do, which was scatter out and fill the earth. And in order to interrupt their their pooling of resources and to break up their sharing of knowledge, he confused their languages. They were all speaking the same language one day when they went to bed, and when they woke up the next morning, they couldn't understand each other. They went to their town meeting, and it was like gibberish. They didn't know what one another was saying. You know, and, and, and they were asking, you know, what's happened here? And they couldn't understand each other. God, obviously, in his benevolent care, kept families able to communicate, but he divided them from their cousins and distant neighbors. And all of a sudden, they found that they could not communicate with one another. They didn't understand each other. They couldn't work together. They couldn't pool their resources. The Babel project was abandoned. And out of necessity, they moved to different parts of the earth and began to spread out because they were stuck in their inability to communicate with each other. We're still in the Mediterranean, eastern Mediterranean region in, in the land of Palestine in that segment there and uh, probably in, in southern Turkey, somewhere along in there. And as people began to move out, guess what they did? They moved north and west into Europe. They moved north and east into Asia. They moved south into Africa. They probably migrated across the straits into north and south America and throughout Russia and what is now China. And um, I don't know how they got to Australia, but that's, <laughs> that's another story, you know. There are some people who, you know, try to look at the map that we have today and and recognize how all the land masses were contiguous. They touched each other at one point. And maybe there's something to that, because the earth was certainly in change and flux after the flood. But, pretty soon you have people migrating. And in their migration, and in their collection in family groups, guess what else naturally happened? A strengthening and pooling of certain gene resources. So that eventually, not only was it different languages, but racial distinctions began to emerge. Um, I, I grew up in the South, and people down South can have some very strange notions, I have to tell you this. Not, not the educated ones, I hope, but um, not all of my uh, uh, distant family and cousins were what you'd call educated, nor on my wife's side. And... Uh, you know, some of them actually believed that white people were created by God and black people descended from monkeys. And black people didn't have souls. Only white people had souls. That's why black people could be treated differently and abused because they, they were not human beings. They were descendants of monkeys. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> some of you are looking at me like, are you serious? I am deadly serious. There are country people in the South, hopefully not anymore, but I'm sure some of them are still hanging out down there, 
that believe that the black race descended from the ape. After all, didn't monkeys start in Africa? Well, so did black people. So they all had to, they all had to be together. And as a consequence of that, they developed this incredible prejudice. But the fact of the matter is, black people and white people and brown people and yellowish people and reddish people used to all be Noah people. They all came from Noah, every single one. We all have the same parent. We all had the same source. And when you see people marrying now interracially, what happens with their children? They begin to take on that human amalgam again of dissimilar kind of distinctive characteristics and more of a blending of racial features and characteristics. And so after a period of time of intermarriage and intermingling, you begin to see more of a common gene pool again instead of the distinctives. Because all human beings are the same. We have the same DNA. We have the same heart. We have the same soul. We have the same spirit. We have the same spiritual problem. We all are sinners. We have all been in rebellion to God. And we all need redemption. We need to be saved. And we need to come to know Jesus Christ. And yet our heritage and our background goes back to the same source. It was God who initially created cultural, language, and racial division in order to force humanity to populate the planet. But then we see that in redemption, God has an agenda to restore the unity in Jesus Christ that was lost because of sin. And I want to underscore that. And and I want to make sure that, that we know this morning that all human beings are sinful, which is why God, in their combined sinfulness, chose to divide the race. And he himself created the other languages. But in redemption, that was a merciful provision to extend the, 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 the life of the human race. It was also a judgment. But in redemption, God wants to restore the unity in Jesus Christ that was lost at Babel. I think I can demonstrate that very clearly with my second point. What is the end of all humanity? For the church, it is the marriage supper of the Lamb and eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ as the family of God. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. Wait till you get there so you can catch this. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou, this is Jesus, 
to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men or people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. As we read in Revelation about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the eternal destiny of human beings, we find out that human beings are going to spend eternity in one of two places. They're either going to be completely alone in hell. I wish that we could get that message across to people who say, I'm gonna, I, I'm, I'd rather go to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. You know, we'll belly up to the bar and go play golf together in hell. I don't know what they're thinking. They have no clear understanding of heaven or hell. But, but Mark uh, chapter 9, verses 44 to 48, Jesus talks about the place of utter outer darkness with eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth and the place where the worm, the, the, the conscience of man never dies and it's utter outer darkness. When you're in utter outer darkness, what can you see? You certainly can't see where the ball goes after you hit it off the tee. You can't find the bar. You're not going to see each other. It's outer darkness. It's utter darkness. Have you ever been in a place that was so dark you literally could not see your hand in front of your face? You've been Okay, I have too. That, isn't that a weird feeling? I mean, you can hold it right here and you can't see it. It's kind of unnerving. Imagine a place like that. Imagine a place that is not only dark, but it is full of torment. You're in extreme pain. How many of you have had extreme pain to the point that nothing in the room mattered? People could not comfort you. You know, you were just mad with pain. Have you ever been there? Where you couldn't focus, you know? I remember as a child, I was 12 years old, I had heart surgery, and uh, they didn't open my sternum, they opened the whole left side of my chest and took out a rib and pulled everything apart with their spreaders and went in there and fixed some things and then then I was in ICU and it would come time for visitation and if I did not have a morphine shot before my parents came in, I was unable to talk with them. I could not I could not communicate because I was in too much pain. Breathing hurt so bad, it was all I could think about. And so it had to be sedated. And that kind of pain, that madness with pain, in utter darkness and aloneness, with nothing to remember but all the things you've done wrong, that's hell. And that's where those without Jesus Christ are going to spend eternity. There is no togetherness. Hell is the opposite of of togetherness. The essence of sin is self-centeredness. Me first. Why would you want to be with anybody else if you die in your sin? All you ever wanted to begin with was what made you happy. And what satisfied you. Who needs anybody else? It's going to be a place of aloneness. And isolation. And torment. But, the other alternative, the glorious alternative is as... Believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to be together with God in one holy family. One family. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is an image of this, that Jesus Christ has purchased for Himself, for God, 
with the with his own blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation there will be a representative in glory of every people group a representative of every language a representative of every race a representative of every nationality all the nations there will be a remnant represented in glory at the marriage supper of the lamb and the glory of redemption is that god will invite from every tongue and tribe and nation people to come to jesus christ and those who follow him at the marriage supper of the lamb which is when the when the festivities begin jesus returns and throws a feast there's a great banquet he has come for his bride and the church has been gloriously taken up to meet him and now we're at the marriage supper and every tongue and tribe and race and nation is represented together with Jesus Christ. What are we going to speak when we get to heaven? <laughs> what language will we talk? I love Pastor Hector's story. He says, if you're going to speak the language of science and technology, you have to speak English. If you're going to speak the language of love, you have to speak French. But he says, if you want to speak the language of heaven, you must learn Spanish. <laughs> you know what I really think? This is, this is Paul Martin's opinion. And take it for just what it's worth, because that's all it's worth. Because God is so interested in redeeming ourselves and our persons, and yet bringing us together in one, I think if you speak Spanish, you're going to speak Spanish in heaven, but everybody's going to hear you in their language. And you're going to hear them in, in, in your language. And if you speak English, you're going to speak English there. And if you speak French, it'll be French. And if you speak, speak Swahili, it'll be Swahili. It, whatever you speak, because that's your heart language. That's your thought formation. That's how you uh, think of yourself and your ideas and communicate them. And I believe there will be perfect understanding because Paul says now... We see through a glass darkly. We don't even understand ourselves very well. But then we will see clearly face to face. We will have perfect comprehension. There will be total communication. There's not going to be any division among us. Because it's God's intention to bring us together in one. The reunion of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says He will rapture a bride without any spot or blemish or wrinkle. And he will bring her unto himself. And she will be represented with every tongue and tribe and nation of men. So here we are with the Tower of Babel on this hand in history past where God himself created linguistic and cultural division that eventually became racial division in the intention of separating humanity for their preservation. And on this hand, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all the redeemed are once again together as one family, one human family, the bride of Christ. All together, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare that for you, and I will come again and receive you, that where I am there you may be also. And there's the glorious future. And the question I have for us this morning is, 
What role does the church today play between Babel and the wedding feast relative to language and race and culture? I began by reading this morning from John chapter 17. Jesus' great high priestly prayer was that we be one, that we all be one in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this is how all men will know that you are my followers. The love that you have, one for the other. The unity that you demonstrate, one for the other. The, the commitment you have to each other in genuine, unselfish love. That's how everyone will know that you are my follower. And then I want to call your attention to two of Jesus' commandments. In the Great Commandment, or Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus fully intended cross-cultural evangelism resulting in a multicultural church. How many of you off the top of your head think you can quote the Great Commission? And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start you out and tell me if you, you think you know what comes next. Therefore, go ye into all the... Ah, nations. <laughs> Thank you. World is King James. But the underlying Greek word is not cosmos. It is not cosmos, which is the, the planet. It is ethnos, which is the different people. Go into all the ethnos, into all the nations. The Spanish, Rihanna Valera translates it, a todos las naciones. A todos las naciones. The nations. No al mundo. Not the world. But the nations. Go into all the nations. Jesus was commanding us to be cross-cultural. He was commanding us to go to all people groups, to all races, to all languages, and to communicate the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 1.8, he makes it very clear when he says, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. And listen to verse 8. In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Now in that case, it's also not cosmos, as in the world, or even uh, mundo in Spanish, it's la tierra, the geography, the planet. But he includes the ethnicity in Judea, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the rest of the planet. And there was no one more despised by Jews than Samaritans. I mean, if ever there was friction, why did they hate each other so much? Because the Samaritans were essentially 
the remnant of the northern kingdom of Jews that intermarried with the Assyrians. And in, as far as the Jews were concerned, they were idolaters, they were half-breeds, they had turned their backs on God, they had compromised, and now they were outcasts. And Jesus said, you will go to the Samaritans in Samaria. And beyond Samaria, you will go to the uttermost part of the planet. La Tierra. All the, all the planet. All the world. You will go there and proclaim the gospel. Jesus commanded us to be multicultural and cross-cultural in our evangelism. So that... When the church came together in Jesus Christ, we would be a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual entity. That would be we would be one in Jesus Christ. And the true mark of every believer to each other and to the world is the amazing truth of how much we love each other. How much we love each other. So why do we fail at cross-cultural efforts? I want to take a few moments and just explore that a little bit. Why do we fail? I've written down a couple of things. This is not in your outline, so if you want to note it down, you have to make notes. First of all, we have fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but we have fear. We are afraid on various levels of cross-cultural relationships, friendships. First of all, we have a comfort zone. And most people don't like to venture outside their comfort zone. I, I want to give you a, a very simple definition for culture, okay? A lot of people have written books on culture, but I want to give you a very simple definition. Here's the definition of culture. The way we do things. The way we do things. Whether it's eating, whether it's dressing, whether it's music, whether it's greeting. Don't you dare extend your left hand to someone in Africa. Whether it's Language? Whatever. Culture is simply the way we do things. Churches have cultures. Each local church has a culture. It's the way we do things. That's why it's hard for people who come to visit, particularly a small church, have a hard time breaking in. Because we have developed our own little cozy culture and it's an unwritten language. We kind of know what we do around here, and we all do it the same way, the same time, all the time. And people who visit have a hard time breaking into that. It's easier to go join a church of 2,000 than it is of 200. Because a church of 2,000 has enough differences going on <clears throat> that you can kind of slide in and find a niche. But a church of 200 tends to be more focused on the way we do things. And if people don't do things the way you do things, then you tend to feel like they're strange. 
And if you get involved in an environment where people are doing things differently from what you're used to, in other words, you're the minority in a different culture, it's challenging to get outside of your comfort zone because we're not comfortable. And the reason we're not comfortable is what if I make a mistake? What if if I'm in one of those countries where you need to keep both hands on top of the table and you have been taught to leave your hand in your lap in formal dining and now you don't know what to do? What if I make a cultural mistake? And so it's been it's been interesting over the years as uh, Ector and I have talked together. It's been interesting to know that uh, certain words that are common to me in English are are uh, not good choices in Spanish, <laughs> even for English. You know, I have to think about that uh, when I when I'm changing it. And you know, and an example of that would be stupid. I mean, we we stupid is not polite in any culture, but. But we tend to say, you know, stupid is not about bad word. But if you are in Mexico and you tell someone they're stupid, um, Hector said, you better be running before you, the words leave your mouth. You better be headed in another direction. It's something to fight over. We're afraid we're going to make a mistake. We're afraid we're going to say the wrong thing. But you know what? We need to talk about these things in the family of God. We need to recognize that part of cultural differences is that we do things differently. And we need to give room for people to make mistakes. They say that the reason most people have difficulty learning a foreign language, a language not their own, is because they're afraid to make a mistake and so they don't speak out. And that's probably the reason I have such a hard time. Besides having a 55-year-old brain that doesn't retain things for very long, I, I also, you know, don't want to make a stupid mistake. And so I'm, you know, concerned about that. And people who are afraid tend to learn less quickly because they don't want to make those social, cultural faux pas that get them in trouble. But friends, in the family of God, we have to take down those fears. God has not given us a spirit of fear, and we have to learn to love each other and make allowances for dumbness. Because it's not that you're dumb, it's that you don't know. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing as long as you have an open mind to learning. It's okay not to know. You're not going to know the first time, but you need to have an open mind to learning. If you want to develop cross-cultural relationships, here's one of the things I encourage you to do. Find someone that you enjoy from another culture and spend time with them so that you can ask them, be honest with me, tell me when I'm making mistakes. If I hurt your feelings, tell me what I said that was wrong. Help me learn, because I need to understand. And if you will do that, and have that communication back and forth, in the love of Jesus Christ, because you truly view that other person as your equal, then the world will begin to marvel at the love that you have. We also have trouble because we do have a language barrier. 
And it takes a lot of patience to overcome a language barrier. I remember one of the first times I had breakfast by myself with Pastor Hector Morales. And I speak virtually no Spanish. And he doesn't speak a lot of English and spoke less at that time. And as a consequence, there was definitely a communication barrier, but we had agreed to have lunch together. You know why? Because we liked each other. We got along. We enjoyed each other. We had a, the first time I met Hector, I had a kindred spirit in my heart. I just, I just connected with him. I was in the living room of Douglas Delmeyer's home in Lake Zurich, and I had an instant bonding. It's like we are supposed to somehow or some way serve the church of Jesus Christ together. And so we had breakfast. And Hector and I were trying to talk. And he was trying to tell me about something with a shadow. And he did not know the English word for shadow. I'll never forget this. And I didn't have a clue because I didn't know what he was trying to tell me. He would say it in Spanish and it made absolutely no sense to me. And then Hector took his hand and he held it over the table And he pointed to the shadow of his hand on the table and he moved it back and forth and moved his finger. And I saw, and I knew, shadow. He's trying to tell me about the shadow. And that's how we learn to communicate. Sign language, 20 questions, mimes, whatever it took. We learn to communicate because if we didn't get it, you know, And I finally learned the phrase, no entiendo. I I don't understand. I I don't have it, so say it again. And we would work together like that. You know, we still have misunderstandings. We still have disagreements caused by language barriers. And sometimes we have disagreements because we have disagreements. No matter what the language is, we're not on the same page. But you have to work at that. You have to work at it. Another thing is, we have to be aware of, even though if you don't think you're prejudiced, see, I I confess, I do not think I have any prejudice. I'm not aware of it. I don't care what color you are, I don't care what language you speak, I don't care what race you are, what country you come from, I'm interested in you. I love you. I, I'm, I want to get to know you. And as far as I know, I don't have any prejudice in my heart. Ah, but I do. It's hidden. It's lurking. It creeps up in funny ways. Let me explain. I have for years driven automobiles that were designed by engineers primarily in Detroit. And then, at one point in time, we needed a car for Rowena, and we, uh, David Weiss hooked us up with a person who owned a dealership that was Toyota, and we got a great deal on a Toyota, and we bought a Toyota primarily designed by engineers who live in Japan. And the first time I got in her car, I tried to turn on the windshield wipers. 
And slow meant fast, and fast meant slow, according to the symbols. And I tried to roll the window down, and it went up. And what did I say? This car is backward. Backward relative to what? My way of doing things. But what did I think? Why did these dumb engineers design this backwards? And I confess to you, because I have many spiritual moments in odd times, I'm trying to roll the window down, and it's going up, and I, and I have to keep remembering to go the other way. You know, it makes sense. You pull it up, you push it down, but it didn't make sense to me initially. And so I'm trying to work this out, and God says, Why do you think they're backwards? Do you think you're forwards all the time? Why did you say backward and not different? And I was convicted. God convicted me sitting in my wife's Toyota that I had hidden prejudice that I did not recognize because they don't do it the way I do it. I thought it was backward. This is wrong. It's not wrong. It's not even backward. It's just different. It's another way of doing it. And does it work? Well, I won't bore you with the details, but it works a whole lot better than the one designed in Detroit. I'll tell you that in a heartbeat. The next one I get, I hope I don't offend anybody, but it's not coming from Detroit. I don't know what they're thinking up there, but it works a whole lot better. It does a better job. It gets better gas mileage. It doesn't need to be fixed as often. Backward? No, that's forward. (laughs) I've been backwards for years. We have to recognize that because something is not the way we're used to doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't mean it's backward. Doesn't mean it's upside down. It means it's different. And when we see those things, we need to inquire. We need to learn to appreciate. That's why you need to build a friendship with someone from another culture. You need to build a friendship where you can speak openly and and work through any feelings that get hurt so that you can say, you know what, I don't understand this. Could you explain to me why your people do this? Because I don't get it. But I want to learn. I want to understand. And then... We have a tendency to want to make everyone like ourselves. We think that unity means we're going to all get on the same page. We're going to all do things the same way. And you know what that means? Uh, those of you that are... You may, you may have come from the same hometown in your marriage, okay? Spoken the same language since the day you were born. and Learned to talk. But if you don't understand this, your marriage is in trouble. Having unity does not mean you're the same. It does not mean you're the same. Having unity means you have the same goals, that you're moving in the same direction. In the case of the church, it's loving the Lord Jesus Christ and winning the world for Christ and loving each other. But it does not mean that we will even begin to be alike. We're not going to be alike. We're always going to have differences. And we will always be most comfortable in the environment in which we grew up 
speaking the language that is our mother tongue. Even people who learn to think in another language, it becomes automatic to them, will say that when they pray, they want to pray in their mother tongue. When they talk to God, they want to speak to God in their heart language because it comes from their innermost being and forms their ideas more clearly than any other language. And that will never change. So we need to get over trying to make one another like ourselves and learn to value and appreciate the differences. And we need to have the courage to acknowledge our differences. Sometimes I think when we get together and we try to to blend our cultures in, in unity, we think, well, I don't want to give offense, so I'm going to eat everything that's put in front of me. There's some things I will not eat. I'm just not going to do it. There's, I have a mental hang-up. To my knowledge, unless Hector slipped me one, I've never eaten a taco made with tongue. And I don't plan to. Or intestines. Tripa. I, not, I don't plan to go there. Unless it comes to me without knowing it. But you know what? My dad ate tongue. That's not a Mexican thing. My dad ate tongue. And pickled pig's feet on saltine crackers. Blech. I didn't like them then. I'm not going to eat them now. So don't, don't try to get me to eat tongue tacos. I'm not planning to do it. But I may get some today at lunch and I won't know it. <laughs> and, and then I'll eat it. That's okay. You know? On the other hand, some of you don't know what you, if you don't know what you're eating, we had very good friends in Pensacola that he was a pastor from Vietnam and he was starting a Vietnamese church and, and, uh, we loved to go to their house. We loved to go eat at their house. It was the most fun. They had the greatest food. I just, I, to this day, I love Vietnamese food. And in fact, I, I like nearly all food, but that's one of my problems. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed the flavor of Vietnamese food, and she would wrap this pork in a rice paper and fry it, and then you would dip it in nuk mum, or fish sauce, and, and, I, and, and I loved that. I just thought that was fantastic. And then one day I learned how the sauce was made. And I won't bother you with the details, but I still love it, because I learned to love the taste before I found out the technique, you know. But, but we need to be willing to say, hey, you know what? <laughs> I love you, but I'm not going to do that. That's okay. I, missionaries may be in a different position when they're trying to reach uh, another culture, and they may have to eat the eyeball of the fish and, and, uh, and treat it as a delicacy, and I'm not sure I can do that, but that's okay. You know, that's, it's different... But I need to be willing and have the courage to say, you know what, I love you, and I, but this is something I don't, I don't want to go there. That's just me. It's a personal preference. I have prefer- My wife served me a salad last night. Don't tell her this. She's not coming till 10 o'clock, and I won't say this at 10 But she served me a salad last night that had a base of beets, followed by cut-up plums and peaches with uh, goat cheese on it. And I ate the plums and peaches. I like goat cheese, but I don't like it in my fruit. And I don't care for, for pickled beets. That's not my favorite thing. So, I left the beets and the goat cheese, and I ate the fruit. 
And Rowena said, doesn't it have a wonderful taste? And then she looked at me, and I had very carefully separated mine. And I said, well, yeah, the peaches are really good. <laughs> Plums are really good. And I kind of like the cheese in a salad. But, um, yeah, and I don't really care for beets. Okay. I, I hope I didn't offend her. She ate the cheese out of my salad and some of the beets. But, uh, you know, we need to be willing to say, hey, that's not, that's not my taste. That's not my style. Whatever. But I'm still interested in you. I still want to learn. I still want to understand. We're together in the body of Christ. Friends, our mission between Babel and the marriage supper of the Lamb is in the church of Jesus Christ today to model heaven as much as we can by being together in unity, loving each other, accepting one another, learning about each other, so that the world watching us will say, wow, God must be in that place, because these people can't get along anywhere else. But God must be in there. They're not demanding one another conform. They're not demanding one another have the same music or the same worship style or the same dress. But they're enjoying the diversity and the beauty. I think the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be one of the most wonderful, fascinating experiences to be present. It's going to be like the world's biggest mission conference. When we sit around all different colors, all different languages, all different backgrounds, and we're together in Jesus Christ, celebrating the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. And at last, there's no division. There's no misunderstanding. There's no confusion. We're restored in redemption. We'll pray that I can preach this sermon in 20 minutes next hour. Otherwise, don't come back for lunch till 1 o'clock, okay? <laughs> Father, thank you for your love. Bless your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.